Uh, Today's passage, uh, back to the real incredible stuff, is from Luke chapter 23. It says this. So it it was now about noon. This is on Friday. And darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and they went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decisions and action. He came to Judea from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, and he wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had ever been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. And then on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners and be crucified and on the third day be raised again. And they, then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and he ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. This is God's word. Uh, First, I want to talk about death. I want to talk about death. Uh, Jesus died. Uh, He died on a dusty hillside on the outside of town uh, in the area where they just sort of piled up trash year after year, generation after generation, and on a Friday afternoon, he died. Uh, We might imagine huge crowds of people that came, like masses of people to to watch either in victory or in grief as he was killed and as as he died. But, But what we find is actually it was just kind of a couple handfuls of people and witnesses, most of the dearest people kind of far off and a few soldiers and a few other people who were dying who were there. Uh, and he, he, by the time he cried his last cry and said his last words, it seems like his 15 minutes of fame were completely over. 
the city uh, kind of went back and moved back into the preparation for this big festival, the Passover, this, ama- this amazing gathering of people. Uh, they were busy at the marketplace buying ingredients for their big meal that they were going to have while Jesus was out there on the outside of the city crying out. Uh, They were going through their checklist for the Sabbath to make sure they weren't going to be doing any more work for 24 hours. Uh, They were were moving on. The excitement of Jesus' presence in the city and then his trial and then, you know, his conviction and his torture and his murder, the excitement around all of that had waned substantially. The crowds really disappeared. And Jesus died in obscurity. He was forgotten. Uh, By his enemies, they had walked away long before he even breathed his last. We're done with that person. Let's move on. Uh, He was forgotten by the Roman Empire. You know, when when they send a person carrying a cross, they know that's it. We're done with that thing. We're done with that whole mess. Uh, By many of his admirers, he he was even forgotten too. He was yesterday's uh, trending topic, I guess. Jesus was on the cross for hours. He was tortured through the night. He carried his own grave marker on his back that said, King of the Jews. Uh, He was rushed into midnight courtrooms. He was betrayed. He was killed. Uh, Breathe in and out, just just for fun, like a yoga class. No, that's what Jesus was doing. That's what his body was doing as it began to shut down. Uh, That's what you'll be doing when your body shuts down also. You know, your nose and your mouth, it inhales oxygen, right? And then it it goes into your blood system and your heart pumps that oxygen to every organ, every muscle in your body. Uh, The breathing makes you alive. Uh, When you stop breathing, life, life is over. Uh, Whether it's an accident on the side of the road, if it's in a hospital room, or if you're surrounded by great-great-grandchildren and you're in hospice care and they're just all sitting around like, I can't believe he lived this long. Eventually, you will breathe your last. Your organs will be starved of oxygen. Your muscles will stop being able to form. Your brain will shut down. Your heart will be still and not move for the very first time since you are a tiny cluster of cells of a human inside your mother. You will die. One of the great displays of Jesus' humanity is actually his dying. There's no real true, like, was Jesus really a human? That can't really be a true doctrine if Jesus couldn't possibly die. If he wasn't designed and built just like me and you where our hearts can stop. And there's really no true, like, embodying what it means to be human except to go through that shadow, go into that great unknown and die. And that's what Jesus did. And he entered into that cavernous cloud of death Uh, that's waiting us all. Uh, Death is something that we're so afraid of that we've created these wonderful euphemisms to kind of obscure what really happened. Uh, We we do all sorts of things to honor and to remember the people that we love that died, but we we say these things to keep us from the, the reality of that. You know, we say things like, your brother passed away. Grandpa has gone asleep. Uh, They aren't with us anymore. Uh, We lost them last year. That language is used and designed not to respect those people, 
but because we have this fear and this great honor of a reality that death is coming and death is real. But Jesus died and he experienced it and he knew death. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, Jesus dies to eliminate the death that we don't know, uh, to embody the substance of sin that we're well acquainted with, so that through that death, we can abandon sin and death forever. I'm just going to say that again because I think it's my best line. (laughs) Uh, Jesus dies to eliminate the death we don't know and to embody the substance of sin that we're well acquainted for with so that death can be abandoned and that sin can be forgotten. What happens to Jesus on that night is nothing short of evil. He experienced evil itself. You know, powers conspiring and more, for more power, people just disposing of human life as if it was nothing. Uh, he experienced that evil and he died for it. As a Japanese novelist Shusaku Indu writes in his novel Silence, which again, here's another recommendation. Everyone should read it. Or if you want, you can watch the movie. It's literally the book. Now, that's not true of many things, uh, but this movie is literally the exact book. It's awesome and it's beautiful. Scorsese's best movie. Anyway, he says this. He says, Christ did not die for the good and the beautiful. It's easy enough to die for the good and the beautiful. The hard thing is to die for the miserable and the corrupt. The good news about Jesus's death, and the the reason we call it Good Friday, is that he died for the miserable and for the corrupt. Uh, He identifies himself with the shame and the guilt that evil produces. He dies for the world, for you and for me. Uh, The shame of evil and guilt is those deep wounds that that have been done by other people to you. Uh, The shame of being left, the shame of being forgotten, uh, the shame of being condemned and judged, the shame of being let go at work, of being neglected, of being betrayed. He dies for that. The dark truth about all of that shame and all of the guilt as we even respond to those wounds by wounding other people and taking hold of our life and pushing others aside, the the dark truth about this is that stuff does not just roll over us. Uh, It doesn't just pass by with the the duration of time as, as we take pages off the calendar or scroll through the calendar. That stuff doesn't disappear. The, the shame and the guilt of it all sticks to us. It infects you. It breaks you. The weight of it, the stain of it, it's all so overwhelming. But then Jesus in his death, he walks a path for your healing from that shame, from that guilt, from that evil. He embodies it himself. He carries it on the cross while being spit on, while being despised, while being abused. And here's what's amazing about that, uh, that, that Friday, and I know it's Sunday, but this is, this is really great and important. What, what's remarkable about that is that each moment that he's walking down that path while he's being forgotten, each moment you're being remembered. Uh, each moment that he's being scarred, you're actually being healed through those scars. Each moment that he's being betrayed and neglected and denied, you are being remembered and being brought into being his beloved. Each of those moments on that day. Uh, Each moment he carries that cross of evil, you're carried closer and closer to freedom. 
As they put chains on him, the chains are being taken off of you. Uh, He stares that silent unknown of death in the face while you are being ushered into the kingdom of life that is known, that you can touch and that you can taste. Jesus on that, that Good Friday walked a path for your freedom, turning all guilt and all shame into glory, into salvation. That's the truth of what happened. This is what's been done on the cross. It's God's victory over the evil that consumes this present age. And then with these words in verse 46, your life and the life of all humans and the the life of this world, of every sea, every rock, every mountain, it's all changed forever with the words in verse 46 when it says, he breathed his last that all of this was God's will, his desire, his passion, it's his purpose, it's his whole plan from eternity past that you would be secured and saved and that that Jesus, the one who was created to reveal the, the majesty and the magnificence of God to us as he was incarnated on that day, not on December 24th, but on that day, it was a spring day, when he was born, he was born for this purpose to reveal God to make the invisible God made known, but he was born with these lungs that breathed their last for you and, more, for you and me. The, the very one, it says in the scriptures that he was the, the, the forebearer of all creation, that all things were created by him and through him. It's pretty remarkable that the one who got down so intimately with Adam and breathed life into him is the one who breathes his last for every son and daughter of Adam and Eve. No one has ever done anything like this for you. No one's done anything like this for the world. Uh, This isn't a a martyr death, you know, where he died and then nothing changed for us. This isn't a rescuer's death, you know, where someone gives their life so a few people can live. This was death by love for the world itself. This was a good day for humanity, a good Friday. It's the day that shame died. It's the day that sin was dealt with. It was the day that death was put into a grave and a big stone was rolled over it. You know, as soon as life leaves the human body, it begins to decompose back uh, into dirt. This is one of these amazing things. If you're like alongside someone who's, you know, growing a human inside of them, uh, what you realize is that... uh, the, the mother is taking in all of these amazing things, vitamins and water and fish and salad and steak and all of this stuff from the earth, they're putting into their bodies and what their body does is it turns it into a person. It's pretty amazing. Out of the dirt, you know, albeit through that, you know, stuff that, that the woman consumes, a body is formed. A newborn child, you know, kind of continues that process of turning material into substance, of turning dirt itself into smiles, into uh, eyes that can weep, uh, into mouths uh, that consume and talk, you know, human life out of the dirt. Adam wasn't the only one. And then when a person dies, uh, that's when a human becomes a body, And immediately it begins to decompose. It really goes back to being dirt. We try to do all these things from the Egyptians until now to try to avoid that. But this phrase, this Linton phrase is true. 
ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So how do you respond, you know, to that ominous reality of death and becoming dirt again? You know, on that Sunday after Jesus' death, you know, all the festivities were done. Uh, This is in chapter 24. Uh, A group of women who saw him, who walked with him, uh, these ladies were really his benefactors. If you ever wonder, how did Jesus, like, survive? You know, just the budget doesn't seem to work out. You know, was he just turning loaves into millions of loaves all the time? It was actually uh, primarily these women and a few of his friends who paid for that whole ministry to happen. They were the the benefactors of Jesus, and they they watched him from Galilee. They walked with him. They were marked by him, transformed by him. They watched him die. They watched him get buried. And then on that Sunday morning, they walked to the tomb. Uh, If you see these these great infusers, sorry, I was kind of calling misters and foggers, and I was way off. Uh, but this, these are the, actually the smells of the incense and the herbs that they would have been carrying with them and that would have even been coming out of the tomb to them. And they went to that place with all the supplies to deal with the remains of life, the customs. Uh, to, they were going to perform all of those on this body that's being decomposed. Uh, their names were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, mother of James, Salome, and, and likely many others. And they were looking for Jesus as a body. They were going to remember and give honor to life, stuff that we do all the time. They were going to go pretty up some of the pain and the agony of that day. Uh, They were going to preserve his memory or what could be left of it. They were going to kind of honor the impact that he had had on them and their lives. Uh, And I, I think that's a real familiar approach that I take with pain and suffering and death. I try to make the most out of the broken things. Uh, pretty it up with, uh, you know, better shoes and better glasses or uh, try to ease that pain. It's something that's lost, something that's been taken away from me so, so neatly. I just try to deal with that. Uh, I don't look for the resurrection of people. I don't know if you do. When, when that relationship is broken beyond all repair, When you've wronged someone so deeply, you think there's no way back. You're not thinking, well, that'll just be better and whole. What you do is you think, how can I find the silver lining? How can I honor what happened? How can I process it? And there's a lot of great processing that happens. But we don't expect things to be raised back to life. Because that's not the way things are supposed to work. Uh, The dead things stay dead. And we just cope with the fallout of that. You know, we try to find good stories to remember, uh, comfortable experiences to make us feel good. Uh, We try to be better next time and have this purpose and meaning of, I'll never let that pain happen again. But then these these messengers of light, they come to them and they say, uh, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He isn't here it's, it's amazing, they, they come to the, it seems like you think you're, you're coming here to cope with the reality of death, but that's not what you're coming here to look for. You're coming here looking for life. See, I think that the, the, the situation that we find ourselves in through all of life apart from Jesus is we're, we're always constantly looking to memories and into the past, trying to find some comfort and some meaning 
But what we're really looking for, these messengers of light are telling us, what we're really looking for, and the only thing that will be good enough, is Jesus. Uh, What are we looking for when we're going to all of that comfort and we're eating that, that macaroni and cheese and the ice cream, and we're, we're looking for people to do things with our buddies or for us to do things with our, that comfort. What are we actually looking for? The messengers of light tell us we're looking for the living God. We're looking for Jesus in a way that those things could never compare. You know, what are we looking for when we've got all this purpose and we're, we say to ourselves, I'm going to take this pain and I'm going to be better for it, stronger for it. I'm going to really accomplish something with my life now that I've experienced all of this pain and betrayal. What are we actually looking for? We're looking for the hope that can only come through Jesus. The angels tell these women what we're all in need of as we face sin and death and evil. We're looking for Jesus. We're searching for that hope, and that hope only. And we won't find that hope in the tombs. We won't find it in the past. We won't find it in any of these other things. And then the the angels utter uh, these words that ring out for all of eternity. He is risen. risen Come on. Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it defies all the expectations that we have for the order of all things. He breaks the human cycle of destruction that we're just used to, that we just accept as if that is the way. But Jesus is saying, no, the way is actually of eternal, physical, embodied worship and life. That's what you were made for. We weren't made to decompose. We weren't made to go back to dirt. We were made for the living. It's amazing this claim of Christianity is that for Jesus, death didn't stick. And because of it, it doesn't stick to us either. Uh, Death couldn't win. Uh, Death couldn't uh, overcome him. That for Jesus, his cells, his muscles, his lungs, his body were all brought back into full life. The lungs that were pierced are breathing again. This is the truth that you can't have uh, Christianity without. It's the audacious claim that no other religion in this world would even dare to make, which is that Jesus isn't today compost. Jesus is the king. Christ is risen. Good, you guys got it. Christ is risen. Life is victorious. Peace reigns. Love is now the law. Uh, The good news is the ultimate news. More true than anything you could read online or hear on the radio, that news is the news. That thriving and restoration is imminent. That decay is momentary because he rose from the dead. And I think that often, I mean, I would expect you would be like me. That's, you know, you guys know that. That's my obvious assumption all the time, that everyone thinks like me, which is wrong, but it's all I know how to do. So pray for me to get better. But I, for a long time, I would sit there on Easter Sunday after Easter Sunday, and I would think, but did he really? Did he really rise from the dead? Because if he did, obviously, you know, the rest of all reality has to hang underneath that sh- 
rose from the dead. Like all, if that's true, then every single thing that we do and all things that come into our life has to be interpreted through there is a God who died and a God who rose. But if he didn't rise, then none of the rest matters, right? Then it's just a good, a good story. You know, I kind of think, I would think about it in terms of like Yelp reviews. It's like great story, good imagery, a little far-fetched. You know, and, and I think for me, and I think this is true for, for all of us, and, and for even generation back, you know, you could go back uh, hundreds of years ago, 500 years ago, and the same kind of deep doubt and question or even hypothesis keeps coming uh, generation after generation, which is, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, did he? The disciples just made this up. They just came up with the great story they, they, and they sold it to the masses. You could even get really cynical. You know, it, you know if you read uh, Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, that was a long time ago. But you might think, oh, they did all this stuff just to acquire power. They, they got together. I used to imagine the disciples in a barn in this dark room just sort of saying, all right, we're all going to say that he rose from the dead and we're going to become really rich. Something like that. And that's really the doubt, and that's even, you know, we go out of this room where people aren't ready to say he's risen indeed, and that's the thought that they have. Some really powerful men, ironically not white men, we always kind of say that. It's a white, it's like a bunch of Middle Eastern men came up with this. But here, I think that, that, that even for the lifelong disciple, that question creeps in over and over again. So I want to give us all a little bit of confidence in it, okay? And if you want even more, I think there's four books that dive into it even more. Maybe there's been picked up. Uh, and I wrote them, and I don't get any money from them, okay? So it's, this is not a commercial. But here are the two things, so you don't even have to read the book. Two things that I think give us a little bit of confidence, and there's many, many others, but these are two of them. Hundreds of people would have had to become co-conspirators and lie about it for their whole lives also. Uh, the Apostle Paul claims that hundreds of people witnessed these things, witnessed Jesus alive and walking. They were eyewitnesses. Uh, the gospel writers take great pains to tell us the names and the faces and the towns that they're from and also their relatives that they have so that the people who read them, this is what's amazing, the people who read these gospels in the first century could go to those places and find those people and go and ask them, Mary, did you see this in the garden? And they could go to, to James and they could go to Peter and they could go to Bartimaeus, the blind man in Jericho, and they say, did Jesus really do that to you? See, I think often we think that the gospels are, are some oral tradition. Oral tradition is, you know, we get around a campfire and we tell stories. Uh, my, my grandfather tells stories like that all the time. He's now 85, and there are way different stories than he told when he was 55. <laughs> and I think we think that that's how the Gospels are pieced together. And then, you know, I'm going to tell those stories, and they're going to morph and shift. And generation after generation, we have these oral traditions that just get built up and built up, Right? The Gospels are not oral traditions that were, you know, a story transferred from generation to generation. The Gospels are the story of one generation, hundreds of people who walked with Jesus, who, who the Gospel writers got together by interviewing and talking to all these people, pieced together the account 
of what happened with this man, Jesus, from Nazareth. It's like when you watch a documentary and they have all of these eyewitnesses who were there and present, and, the, and you, they're being cut to over and over again, tells you their name and what they do for a living and where they were on that one day, right, when we decided not to eat meat anymore. Like, they'll tell you, right? And we, we interact with all of that knowing, okay, this is a collective of eyewitnesses, or in a trial of even some of the most atrocious things that's ever happened. We call in witness after witness to give different perspectives, and they don't have to have a camera phone on them for us to say, wait a second, here are 40 people telling us the same thing from a different perspective. That is what we have in the New Testaments. They're not myth. And if, and if it was just this grand conspiracy These people would have had to carry it, not just to their graves and into poverty. They would have had to defend it against all sorts of alternative endings, alternative stories, right? Like if if we, and what's, this is fascinating, okay? Very dorky. You cannot find those alternate stories. What you can find is actually lots and lots of evidence of many people claiming to see Jesus, claiming that Jesus rose from the dead. You can find tons of evidence that Jesus did rise from the dead and that people believed it and put their claim on their whole life on that fact. It's pretty remarkable that the resurrection of Jesus in the first century, reading other things from the first century, Even among those people who didn't follow Jesus, who didn't believe in that, they just assumed and they accepted that as some mysterious fact. There's no alternative story. The other thing that the great lie, kind of like the disciples got together and made this sort of story up is, is when you create a story, you want it to be a story that people would want to believe, right? Like, you want to kind of create a fervor and say, all right, like, this is what the people want, so I'm going to give them that thing. Like, when you lie, and I know that you all lie, yeah? No one wants to own that. Okay. When I lie, and I'm the only liar in our entire church, and I repent, and I want to believe. But when you lie, you don't tell lies that people don't want to believe. You tell lies people do want to believe. You tell, when our politicians lie, they're not telling us, you know, hey, I just have this great lie. Our economy's in the dumps, and crime is huge, and the world is falling apart. Do politicians tell those kinds of lies? (laughs) They come and they tell, well, I guess it depends if they've won or if they've lost. If they've lost, they tell us those lies, yeah. You make up lies that people are ready to. You don't create stuff that would repulse them, that would frustrate them, that would marginalize the very people you're trying to re- uh, reach, right? The resurrection, uh, among not, not all of the Jewish people even believed that resurrection was a thing. But among the people who did believe in resurrection, they believed that what would happen is the Messiah, the King, the Promised One would come, and then he would raise up all of their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah. They would all be raised back. And then they would have this awesome time together and they would have the kingdom of God. They did not believe in a Messiah who could die, who would come and who would die and then rise only themselves. For those people, the very few that even believed resurrection was a thing, they would have thought, well, that is a joke and it's unacceptable that God would do that and not the rest. And then the much larger audience were the Greeks, 
who did not believe in resurrection at all. It was the the opposite. For them, the greatest aim of any human, and you can see this in their philosophers and their teachers and their leaders, the aim of every human was to escape the body, was to get out of this whole existence, to be free from the constraints of the living. This is why so many of their philosophers killed themselves. That was redemption. That was liberation, was to get out of this whole thing. And therefore, a Messiah who dies and then comes back to life to walk around with us and to live in this world is not just like, that's far-fetched and crazy. It's even deeper than that. That's a, that's a curse. He couldn't possibly be the God that we all hope for and long for because he got pushed back into this world. He came back. What a foolish God that is. It reads like a curse mythology, not redemption. And so just to summarize both of those things, uh, and there's many other things that you can look to. Uh, You can pick up the book, or I'll give it to you for free. It's all free. If you piece all of that together, you're left then asking a much deeper question. How does a small Jewish sect in an unknown part of the world come up with this story that becomes the central belief of a, of a faith and of communities that transform town after town and city after city to where people's philosophical notions shift, not over hundreds of years like we're used to, but over decades, to where at the end of even the first century and then for sure by the end of the third century, everyone is looking for and longing for life out of death. How does that happen? It happens because Jesus really rose from the dead. People saw him. Christ is risen. risen See, we are not telling the story of a person long ago. We're talking of a person alive today. The one and the only one who defeated death and brought us all back into life. Jesus is the one that we are looking for the thing that we're searching for, the one that death could not hold. He's the God of the living. And so I say to you, believe. Believe these things. Place your trust and your affection, put your whole devotion solely on Jesus. And what happens when you do? That's my other question I always asked. What happens if I walk in this life with Jesus? What is this eternal abundance that I'm supposed to receive today? Here's the truth, and this is what's true for us, because we're not just telling the story of Jesus who rose, but we're telling the story of how we have been risen also. You're raised into a deep relationship with God when you believe and trust and commit your life to him. You're raised into a a relationship out of the grave with God into this abundant union with God. Humanity is raised by the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That is what's living in you. That's what you're actually breathing in and breathing out. You're brought into a whole new family of, of God's family under the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You know, our humanity has been brought back to life too. Where we were once spiritually dead, we're now thriving and at peace. We're alert now to the beauty and the glory and the grace of God, and we see it in all of these places. 
You're now a new human belonging to a new community, a new outpost of the glory of God in this world. Uh, Christopher Wright uh, articulates this very well. He says, when a person puts their faith and hope in the crucified and risen Savior, nothing can rob them of the new creation life of which Christ is the firstborn and the first fruits. Only the gospel offers the finality of that hope and the certainty of that future. Only the gospel offers and proclaims the promise of a new humanity to those who pr- whose present humanity has been scattered and shredded. Jesus rose from the dead, and we have nothing to fear except uh, a life not fully embracing that truth. That's the only thing we have. We get to strive for what's already been fulfilled in Jesus. And so this is how you respond to all that if you're like, man, I kind of want to believe all of this stuff because it's not just good story far-fetched, but good story true. Internal decision with an external and an outward devotion. How do you respond? When we say repent and believe, it's that. It's this internal decision of this is what I trust for that produces this outward devotion that everything that you touch in life gets to experience. And you get to bathe in the the forgiveness of sin and the restoration, the redemption of your soul. And then what do we do if we believe all of this and we have believed it? There's these two words that come up twice. In the beginning, the women go and they're wondering about these things. And then at the very end, Peter, who runs to the tomb, who sees that Jesus is not there but must be alive, he wonders about these things to himself also. It's the same word that uh, is used when uh, Mary is holding this new child uh, and she's wondering and holding all of these things in deep affection for herself. Who is this God who came into this world? Who is this God who died? Who is this God who lives? Think if I had to describe what a Christian is, it's someone who spends the rest of their lives wondering and taking hold of and gazing at the beauty and the mystery of this thing of wondering day by day, meditating, reflecting, and living in a reality in which God is not just king, but God is the one who defeated death and rose again. Amen? Amen. Let's live with that wonder and that attentiveness to the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your death, and we thank you for your life this morning, Uh, that what was broken is now mended and made whole. Jesus, you are so uh, good and so worthy. We could spend uh, days and years and months and never even get close to ascribing to you all the glory and the worship that, that is rightfully and should be freely given to you. We pray that in this day, in this moment, we respond with that kind of adoration, that we taste and that we see the, the glory of your resurrection this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.